Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This week, Justin Trudeau and uh, Patty Haydu, or Haydu, the um, health minister, offered assistance from Ottawa to the provinces to distribute vaccines. And so then I asked myself, which vaccines? The AstraZeneca, which no one appears to want. And uh, how are premiers responding to Ottawa, particularly, again, the premier of Saskatchewan, who a few weeks ago told us the Trudeau government's rollout to provinces sometimes only 24 hours notice of arrival of vaccines was abysmal. Premier Mo, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, not a problem, Roy. Uh, not a problem at all. Great to be here today. And and uh, on a, what is a snowy day again here in Saskatchewan as we're getting a little bit of a storm, but uh, spring's right around the corner and we're looking forward to it. Absolutely. It won't be long. Uh, Premier, what's the status of vaccine availability to the provinces by the federal government and particularly to Saskatchewan? You told us last time the situation was abysmal and now we have the Prime Minister and the Federal Minister of Health offering to come and help you. <laughs> what we need them to do is to procure more vaccines as quickly as possible. You know, at the global level, it is, it is abysmal. Canada is far beyond many other nations in procuring large amounts of vaccine uh, in, you know, in, in, as quickly as possible. And all paths through this pandemic, you know, let, let's be clear, all paths through this pandemic lead through a vaccination clinic somewhere in this nation. And so we need vaccines to offer uh, the folks. The provinces have the public health systems that will deliver these vaccines. And we just haven't had enough uh, in, in short enough time. And you need to look no further, uh, just south of the border to the U.S. and what's happening there. I believe we have more more cases, uh, daily cases here now in Canada than they do in the U.S. And that, that just hasn't been the case for a number of months. Um, and the only thing that is different is that the United States of America has had a much more sound procurement policy between uh, began by Donald Trump, President Trump, and and then delivered on uh, by President Biden more recently. So uh, the, the federal government, uh, Minister Haydu, the prime minister, all those folks involved would uh, continue to <laughs> their, their efforts should continue to be focused on ensuring that we can get these vaccines uh, over the course of the next number of weeks so that the provinces can then deliver them to Canadians. Premier, what's the reality for you uh, in Saskatchewan as far as the availability of vaccines is concerned? Then I'd like you to just also, if you wouldn't mind, include in your answer the fact that we have to wait now, and this is a national issue, 16 weeks between the first and the second vaccination. Yeah, so where we are in, in Saskatchewan is that we're actually leading the nation with our our administration of these vaccines. We did a little over 13,000 uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, which uh, is you know, on a per capita basis, uh, quite high. Um, we have over 22,000, almost 23,000 vaccines delivered uh, per 100,000 people. So we're approaching that 25% of, of folks that have received one dose of vaccine. And that, as I said, is is uh, is leading the nation. In saying that, um, we have more capacity. We've used, uh, utilized to this point drive-through clinics. We've utilized uh, appointment-based clinics. We have not yet utilized our pharmaceutical capacity, which likely has more uh, capacity than than we do with what the, the methods that we're that we're currently using. So uh, we have a, a lot more capacity that we're hoping to ramp up uh, in the coming week or two uh, with using our phar- pharmacies across the province. And we most certainly can deliver uh, all of the vaccines that the federal government delivers to us. We're likely going to have to shut down some of our drive-through clinics here this week as we see some delays in some of our shipments 
uh, coming this week. Um, but we we have most certainly been able to deliver everything that the federal government has uh, has supplied to us, and uh, and we will and we will continue to do so. The four week interval is, uh, I mean, it is what it is. We're, we're we're having that discussion in Canada due to the fact that we haven't had uh, early access to these vaccines. If if we had enough vaccines, um, we we would be able to be delivering those those two shots in in much shorter order. Uh, the fact that we are so short on vaccines and now we see you know very, a number of different variants uh, entering our communities and we're dealing with that in Saskatchewan, much like many other communities across Canada. Um, we we just don't have that luxury here. We need everyone to get one shot and get that that at least a layer of protect, protection as quickly as possible, so that we can uh, get on top of <laughs> win the race, if you will, between the variants and the vaccines. And then I know our plan in Saskatchewan is just not even to to uh, slow down our capacity, but turn right around as quickly as we can. Yeah, start delivering those second shots, and then moving on moving on to uh, a little bit more normal of a lifestyle. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the United States, Walgreens supermarket chain has gotten themselves into trouble. Big story in the New York Times. They got themselves into trouble because they delayed the second shot by four weeks, not the recommended three weeks. And they have now said, okay, we're going to make sure that everybody who comes here gets the second shot within three weeks. And here we're talking about 16 weeks. Uh, Premier, let me just segue to something else here. What is your sense of the appropriate public health policy to, to help Canadians weather the storm as we wait for the vaccines? Well, we, we, we have to continue to have this conversation. We see it in, uh, you know, many provinces where, and, you know, we're discussing it here in Saskatchewan as well, is, you know, how do we manage these variants in the last uh, number of weeks of, of, uh, of this pandemic until such time that we can provide that first shot of vaccine for, for everyone? And, and we'll be down uh, by mid-May, by the 20th of May, we're confident that we will be down to uh, offering vaccines to those folks in Saskatchewan that are 18 years and older. So that isn't that far away. Um, and what we need to ask all Canadians, and I think all premiers, uh, including the prime minister, have been asking all Canadians, is we, we, do, see, uh, we do see the end of this. and It is in sight. But between now and then, we just need to be uh, doubly vigilant with the, the various public health orders that we have across this nation so that we can find our way there and actually win the race uh, with the vaccine delivery, however delayed it has been, but win that race between the variants and or between the vaccines and the variants. And we're doing everything possible here in, in Saskatchewan to give our, our population, our folks that I represent uh, across this province, every chance to do so. Premier Mo, let me segue to the federal budget. 19th of April, so just a few days from now, there'll be the first federal budget in over two years. What is it that you want to see and what do your fellow premiers want to see in this first federal budget in more than two years and what do you not want to see? Well, I, I can tell you what, what the premier's uh, table, the Council of Federation table will be looking for is a, a commitment to, to long-term health care, a long-term health care partnership in the, in the Canada Health Transfer Funding. Uh, they'll also be looking for infrastructure commitments in, in that budget. And I would say the third thing that I will be looking for, and I know many, many of my uh, colleagues, uh, premiers across the nation are also going to be looking for, we understand there's a, a, a large amount of supports that are being offered right now to families, to people, to businesses, to communities, uh, and, and, and respectfully to provinces as well that we flow through to those folks. We need a path to balance. Those, those are, for the, uh, you know, in a large part, one-time costs or may extend over the course of a year or maybe two. Um, but we need to have a, a government that is going to have a bold path to 
you know, writing our fiscal ship. Yes, this has been a, uh, you know, as we say, the, the largest, uh, you know, the largest economic event that Canada and likely the world has faced since World War II. Uh, yes, there's supports that need to be delivered by governments in, in this nation, provincially and federally and around the world. But we also need to have the foresight to have a plan to bring this, this fiscal house back into order. I would hope that there's some discussion about that on budget day. I, I fear there may not be, but I'll be looking for that as well. Earlier this week, both the federal health minister and the prime minister offered their assistance to the provinces to distribute vaccines. In other words, you're not doing the job you should be doing, but we are. But no, you're not, because we don't have enough vaccines in this country. That's the reality. We don't. And that ultimately is what's going to help a great deal in getting this situation under better control. Because as we just found out, as we've been talking about over the last number of months, year, plus, in particular the last few weeks, these variants, these COVID variants are becoming quite the, uh, quite the challenge. And as one of our guests pointed out yesterday, a research scientist from the University of British Columbia said that they, they're in competition with each other. The toughest, the strongest, the bully virus will be the or variant of the virus will be the one that survives. And, and that's the one that's going to cause us the most difficulty. Dr. Ann Collins knows a lot more about this than I do, so I don't know why I'm babbling along here. She's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Would you just give me your sense, please? Uh, you're a family physician. You're also the president of the Canadian Medical Association. So you have your finger on the pulse of medicine delivery, healthcare delivery in this country. Where are we? What, what's, what's going on with these variants, with the original COVID? What do people generally need to understand about where we are now? Well, as I have been telling my family, Roy, this the COVIDs have changed this game dramatically. It's it's a whole different level of play. Um, and for your listeners to, to understand that, that we're talking about primarily two variants now in Canada. Um, one originated in the UK and then the other that originated in Brazil. There are others. And, and what's important to know is that they are so much easier uh, to to contract or to they spread more easily. They spread more quickly with less contact. And so um, that's really changed the whole nature. We're seeing uh, younger people getting very sick very quickly, uh, even, uh, unfortunately, in ICUs and, and with death. Right. So that's across it, the country, right? Across the country, that's right. I don't think it's. Uh, I'm. I live in Atlantic Canada, and and so we are not. Um, we're not free of that. We certainly are not in the same situation that some of the hot spots, certainly in Quebec, Ontario, and further west, are experiencing. But no one is immune to this. No, Dr. Collins, how has healthcare delivery actually changed in this country over the last? months and now these particular weeks because we just found out a couple of days ago or the, the, the order was given, if you will, or a strong suggestion was given that um, ramping down elective procedures must take place, including surgeries in order for COVID to get their COVID pa- patients to get the attention they require. How much more difficult is it for medicine to be delivered in this country today? Well, that's put us right back to where we were a year ago, and, and we know that what resulted from the first wave of the, the pandemic was um, the creation of what we now call backlog, 
um, in significant procedures. And, and we're hearing now even more so with cancer surgeries um, being delayed and delayed yet again. So this recent order um, will only compound that further. And I think it's important, too, to recognize that there was no, there was a bit of a catch-up from phase from the first wave of the pandemic, but certainly not to the point that we were prior to the pandemic, which wasn't great to begin with. So it's it's made it a challenge. Um, access to care remains a challenge. Uh, you know, we have 5 million Canadians without primary care. That's right. So, uh, you know, for them to access, even if they have health problems, it, there's delays in diagnosis which compounds um, the issues further down the road. Um, There's a lot going on right now that will need a lot of attention. COVID is front and center right now. It it has to be. But there's going to be a lot of attention required to uh, access to care, um, catching up on the surgical procedures, what's going to need to have to happen there um, as we move through and, and out of this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, the question is, the question becomes, and I'm sure you've addressed this and you are addressing it within the ranks of the CMA, the question becomes, how do you catch up? How do you how do you catch up for all of these surgeries and all of these procedures that have been postponed in the situation, the, the health of these individuals, these Canadians, these people who have, uh, have health problems may become more dire as they wait. So how do you catch up? Well, that's going to need certainly a multi-pronged approach. Uh, we know from a study that we did earlier that it would cost at least $1.3 billion to address the backlog from the first wave. And the federal government has introduced with Bill C-25 a demonstration of of, uh, wanting to transfer funds to the provinces to help with that. Clearly, that was the first wave. We're now into the third. It's going to take a lot more than that. But it's also, you have to address the human resource side of this issue. Uh, yes, perhaps ORs should be operating uh, beyond the typical schedules, but you need to have uh, you need to have the nurses, the anesthesiologists. You need to have the whole team there to do that. Right. There's going to have to be some triaging uh, in terms of setting priorities around um, what surgeries need to be done as we do catch up. BC has done some of this um, well. Uh, it took a commitment of, of money and human resources to do that. So, again, it, it speaks to the need for cooperation, collaboration, innovation yeah. um, for this to be done effectively. Dr. Collins, what are you hearing from uh, your members, from doctors across the country, from all disciplines, all medical disciplines? How fatigued are they? How are they dealing with this? I can tell you, Roy, that if you start in the ICUs, and particularly in the ICUs, today in places like Toronto, uh, Vancouver, um, people are, I think, distraught, maybe professionally distraught. Let's put it that way. They're doing their jobs. They're doing their very best, but they're seeing incredible numbers. And with younger people as well, um, they feel that uh, enough maybe hasn't been done quickly enough or long enough to get control of this virus. And it goes right out to physicians in the community um, who are concerned not just about COVID, but for their patients who have experienced delays in diagnosis, experienced accessing Mm -hmm. treatments. They're tired. Everyone is, all Canadians. 
but they're tired and they've been operating at high stress levels for a long time, and that's a concern to us about of what's going to happen. Yeah, of course, because we're not talking about uh, just numbers here. We're talking about human beings who are patients that the doctors become uh, personally engaged with because they're, they're treating them. When you say that uh, you have concerns that some things weren't done that should have been done, could have been done, what are they? Well, we saw, we've seen some flip-flopping in terms of um, lockdowns, uh, public health measures being imposed, and then lifted, um, and and where it where we heard doctors who are working in these areas saying, "Look, it's it's too early to be doing this. The numbers are still climbing." So our call is to impose whatever needs to be done with uh, stringent public health guidelines and sustain them, sustain them until there is assurance that there is control and containment of the virus before there's any thought of lifting those. Uh, restrictions. And vaccine rollout is critical here. Needs to be fully accelerated, targeted, get it to those vulnerable communities, get it to essential workers, and use whoever can be used to administer the vaccine. Family doctors. It's wonderful to see the pop-up clinics that are happening, um, but that needs to be um, scaled up uh, even more to protect more Canadians. Absolutely. Uh, can you give me just a 20-second assessment, your own, of the wait of 16 weeks between the first and the second vaccine? What do you think of that? I, I think that, first of all, I go right back to, um, you know, public health uh, scientists, epidemiologists, clinicians have looked at these numbers, and and I, they feel it's critical to get a dose into as many arms as possible, um, as quickly as possible. And, and I think that as Canadians, uh, that is important. And, and I would just say okay. uh, to all Canadians, when you're, when you're offered, when you can access, no matter what the vaccine is, please get it. The uh, Derek Chauvin trial continues, and it's been a very interesting week and uh, many developments in the trial. We're joined by Kim Belware, national reporter with the Washington Post. Uh, Kim Belware is at the trial in Minneapolis. Kim, thank you very much for taking the time. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy on George Floyd testified this week. Could you speak to that, please? So I I wanted to clarify that um, I'm actually not in Minneapolis. My colleagues, some of my colleagues are, but I am covering, um, I'm part of the coverage of the trial. I'm doing that remotely because it's so limited who can be there based on uh, the pandemic precautions. But for the first week, uh, that was all very emotional testimony from eyewitnesses. In the second week that just wrapped, these were police experts, including people from Derek Chauvin's own force on the Minneapolis Police Department, and then also health experts, including the medical examiner who performed George Floyd's autopsy. And this is really where we're seeing a clash of the arguments made between the prosecution and the defense, because both are arguing from different angles, the central question, what killed George Floyd? So uh, the defense attorney is focusing on the health of George Floyd. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, and how has that been presented? Um, Really, what we're seeing, you know, we kind of see the direction that the defense is going in their cross-examinations and sort of which parts of the expert testimony they're trying to tease out, 
or trying to complicate. I think one of the most interesting exchanges was what we saw Thursday when they talked to um, a pulmonologist, you know, basically a breathing expert who studies very deeply just the machinations of how people breathe. And um, for someone who has very uh, you know, technical language, he was able to break it down pretty effectively. What we heard from the pool reporter in the courtroom is that the jurors were very interested. They were taking a lot of notes. And it was pretty clear in establishing, you know, with, with very high levels of certainty, you know, using equations and different diagrams, um, exactly, you know, why he came to the conclusion that it was, you know, that it was pressure, it was asphyxiation that caused George Floyd's death. And really all the defense could do was um, just kind of make that testimony seem muddier or somehow less certain. Uh, it, we're not going to know quite as much until we get into next week when the defense starts bringing their own witnesses. But right now, really, the, the everything they have that they're trying to do is is just trying to push back as much as possible and reclaim as much ground as possible um, from parts that suggest there were things um, there were other contributing factors, which is why we really see them latch on to, um, co- you know, the discussions about the presence of drugs and, you know, George Floyd's heart and lung conditions. Right. Now, we were told, and I've read a number of uh, accounts on this, that the, the, the judge in the case is receiving high marks for how he's conducting the trial. Is that your sense? Yeah, I mean, Judge Cahill seems like he is, uh, you know, he is a very steady hand at this. Um, he's, you know, got a good reputation. He's being very protective of the jury in particular. You know, he is trying to avoid, uh, you know, he is trying to avoid a mistrial. He does not want the city to go through this again. He doesn't want jurors or everybody have to go through this again. He wants this one and done, and he wants it done right. Whatever conviction uh, or, or acquittal comes up, he wants that to stand and, and kind of be above reproach. So he, you know, is is being very proactive in, you know, doing sidebars and, you know, kind of steering the defense and the prosecution um, off of off of lines of questioning that, you know, might be too objectionable, unfair. Um, and, and it really seems like he's being pretty fair. But going back to the jury again, too, he's really trying to make sure that the jury is rested and alert and is, you know, very clear on, uh, you know, kind of what they should be paying attention to because they're going to be going into deliberations, we expect, in about a week. Is there something in particular that's taken you by surprise? Um, and, you know, that's hard to say because I've, I've watched a lot of trials like this of police officers, including ones in um, in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, one, one thing that, you know, definitely stood out to a lot of people is just, this time, the number of uh, active duty police um, experts, including the chief himself, who were testifying against, uh, you know, against an officer. Now, if that I don't know that I would go so far as to say that represents any kind of sea change in American policing. But it was very notable that, um, you know, there is a there is a police officer on trial and you had his supervisors, his trainers, all the way up to his chief. Um, testifying against him, uh, the jury. As you as you uh, watch the jury, and, uh, and and you say the judge, Judge Cahill is very protective of the jury, and I understand that. As you as you watch the jury, are you getting any signals? Do you have any sense from them? Um, so this is an interesting thing. The judge, part of the, one of the things he's doing to protect the jury is he is keeping them 
private, so they're not seen on camera. The only person who can see the jury is a single pool reporter who rotate. you know, it's a different person every day who's in the courtroom, and uh, there are certain things they can and can't describe about the jury, but they have generally kind of in broad strokes, um, you know, sort of discussed, you know, um, is the jury falling asleep? Is the jury alert? Are they crying? Um, yeah. And so what, what we've heard from those pool reports over the past two weeks is the first week was very difficult on the jury. Uh, there was, you know, suspected that one of the jurors might have been having a panic attack after seeing all of the footage. You know, there were jurors that were viscerally reacting to um, some of the video that was being played of George Floyd, you know, gripping their chairs, wincing, crying. And then in the second week, you know, we see kind of their energy flag if the day is getting long and if the expert testimony gets a little bit dry. And uh, so, you know, they, everything that we've seen is that they, they seem to be, you know, taking this all in and, um, you know, and taking notes and, and they seem to be pretty engaged. My guest is Dr. Gerald DeRosa, head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster, British Columbia. And I just want to repeat the quote uh, that Dr. DeRosa gave Global News. We're seeing 30-year-olds in the intensive care unit receiving full critical care support, including some measures we really reserve for the sickest of the sick. And the thinking was, and I guess that was the reality, a year ago that the the younger generation was going to do quite well as far as dealing with COVID is concerned. These variants are changing that dynamic. Dr. DeRosa, thank you very much for the time. How are the variants, in fact, changing the way you're doing medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital? Well, thanks, Roy, for having me. Uh, yeah, well, I think, you know, as you said, you know, in the first wave, generally we saw patients uh, that got really sick. They tended to be over 70 years old or they tend to have significant medical comorbidities. Um, the ones that got COVID who were younger didn't seem to present that often to the hospital um, or be that unwell. Um, I think with, with this third wave, we are seeing um, the younger population present to the hospital, sometimes very sick. And I think that um, when you have a younger population like that, uh, sometimes the even the treatments that you offer are slightly different, you know, um, some of the more elderly patients, say, in their 80s, if they were to get really sick, they have a different direction of care and different goals. Uh, but obviously, a 30-year-old uh, who gets really sick, their general goal is to uh, do everything possible to keep them alive and get them healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that, you know, when you get that larger number of younger people who get ill, then, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of resources behind them appropriately to try and get them better. Uh, what are you seeing as far as the rapidity of these variants spreading is concerned and increasing numbers of variants? And I, I guess, and we've said this before on this program and talked to health care experts, that we probably don't know all of the variants that are out there. And they're competing with each other, as somebody pointed out on this program yesterday. Eventually, the, uh, the biggest and the strongest of the, of, the, of the COVID variants will be the ones that uh, become the biggest problem because they're the... They're the bullies on the block. But uh, what are you seeing as far as spread is concerned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, you always see viruses um, ad adapt, right? Viruses and bacteria adapt to different treatments. So you see these variant populations come up. Um, you know, it does seem that the transmissibility of these 
uh, variants are, you know, the estimates that I've seen and heard are two to three times more virulent than the others, uh, than the originals. And therefore, you know, in a group setting, it can spread a lot faster. Um, you know, on a day-to-day basis on the front lines, we actually don't know what subtype of, of COVID the patient has, right? We just, we just get the diagnosis of COVID. And really, when we treat them in a hospital setting, we treat all of them the same, regardless if they're a variant or not. Uh, you know, as our uh, public health officer, Dr. Henry, said, you know, we're essentially going to assume that, you know, it's now a variant um, and, you know, treat uh, as such to, to have the highest level of, um, I think, concern. And, uh, and so, you know, oftentimes the, the exploration of the variant, and whether it's a variant or not, that, that ends up being in the public health domain to look at outbreaks and right. stuff. But, you know, in, in the specific patient, you know, our treatment is pretty similar. Do you think people generally understand the level of the current COVID threat? Or do you think people are generally suffering from COVID fatigue and don't want to hear about it? Uh, I think a lot of people have COVID fatigue and don't want to hear about it. I mean, geez, I'd almost put myself in that category, but I can't uh, kind of ignore it. Um, But yeah, you know, and I think that, you know, we're going on probably more than a year now of hearing about COVID. And I understand very much where people are at. Um, I understand the beginning, you know, a lot of people said it's very dangerous. And if you were in that younger generation, you didn't see yourself getting sick. You didn't see people getting sick. You kind of sit there and go, well, maybe it's not that bad for me. Right. And so I think the purpose for a lot of us to to get on the news and talk about these variants is to really highlight that things have changed. And I, I do want people to understand that and that if you are, you know, younger, you are at risk and all of our hospitals, you know, have very sick patients in their 20s to 50s. And you'll see that across the country. You'll, you'll have ICU doctors pleading with patients or, or people, the public, to listen, you know, with these sad stories of these younger individuals with families and young kids who are sick in the ICU. We have about 30 seconds. Uh, tell us how sick people do get with COVID. What have you seen? So, I mean, I've seen a 30-year-old person who essentially could not get oxygenated properly even with a breathing tube, a machine, and on full 100% delivered oxygen. So in those cases, you have to to keep someone alive, you have to do a treatment called ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And you basically take the blood and oxygenate it through a machine, and and then you give the blood back to keep someone alive. Now, that treatment is... You know, as I said before, for the sickest of the sick, that treatment's only done in a few centers in British Columbia. So so then you have to transfer patients from an ICU in another hospital to an ICU like our hospital to actually provide that treatment. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.